Hello, and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. And joining me today are Leonora Walters, Personal Finance Editor, and Adrian Ash, Director of Research at Bullion Vault. A few weeks ago, we discussed how gold fits into a portfolio and the merits of holding gold versus gold miners and the advantages and disadvantages of that. However, there is more to consider when adding gold to your investments. And one of the starting point is knowing what affects the price of gold, which, when measured on a day-to-day basis, can be just as volatile as equities. Adrian, so I suppose as, at that starting point, um, what are the main factors which determine the price of gold? Then? Well, a lot of people look at things like geopolitics, uh, things like Brexit, Trump, China trade war. They look at inflation. They look at government deficits. But actually, these kind of headline events don't tend to move the price of gold unless they're having an impact on other asset classes. And that's really what drives the price of gold higher or lower. Consumer demand... China is the number one gold consumer nation now, overtaking India. That really just puts a floor under the price. It's, you know, consumer demand by definition for jewellery and so on is never going to push the price higher. Those people are very smart and they like to buy on a dip, sell on, sell on a spike. Um, so really it's about investment demand and it's about large investment funds coming in, big inflows of money to gold. And that's really driven by two things, what's happening to the stock market and what's happening to interest rates particularly real interest rates when you account for the rate of inflation. Gold is often seen as a form of hard money, but of course it doesn't pay you any income. It's just a lump of metal, it doesn't do anything, it doesn't even rust. So it's very sensitive to real interest rates, to what's happening to the value of cash in the bank. So real interest rates is uh, interest rates, well, inflation minus interest rates, yeah. yeah that's right, yeah. So it's, would yes. this be interest rates in the US or kind of global averages? Well, it actually, it's interesting because it does actually apply for, obviously gold is priced in whatever currency you have. You know, typically we quote gold in dollars, but of course it has a price in sterling, you can buy it in sterling, it has a price in yen, it has a price in euros. Uh, and if you look at the long-term historic data, it does tend to move inversely to what the real interest rate is doing for instance, for euro investors, uh, you know, the euro gold price will move opposite to the direction of real rates. So if real rates collapse, such as they did during the financial crisis, down to, you know, like a four decade low on sterling, minus two and three percent in real terms after inflation, that's really when you saw gold prices moving. The key thing with the real interest rate, and a lot of people misunderstand this, is it's not about the level. Obviously, interest rates in the UK are still below inflation and look like they're going to stay that way for a very long time. But the gold price has been relatively Uh, range band for the last five years now. Um, So what's actually the key there is the direction of real rates. If real rates are rising but are still negative, that might be bad for the gold price because it means that cash in the bank is becoming a better uh, relative asset class to gold, which, as I say, doesn't pay you anything. The other key thing then is really equities, and that's really what moves gold. That's really what moves the needle uh, in a way that you can see. If you look... Uh, the way that people often see gold is they say it's a safe haven, so the stock market dumps, people dash in. That may or may not work. I mean, on a month-to-month basis, uh, the gold price in sterling versus the FTSE all share, it's no better than a coin toss. Half the time, the FTSE goes up, gold may or may not go up with it, and 50-50 the other way. If you look at it on a longer-term basis, though, five-year horizon, over the last half century, when the FTSE all share has traded lower from five years before, Gold has risen in every single of those 10 years on a five-year basis. Why do you think that is? Is that just the case of um, over the short term you can't see people reacting as much to kind of selling which isn't going into gold and it kind of averages out over the long term? Is that- I, th- I, th- I think basically you know, any kind of short-term move where you say, quick, I need, a, I need a defensive, I need a safe haven. Well, you know, as I say, it's like a coin toss. Yeah. But where you see extended losses, extended periods of loss in equities, you know, equities underperforming year after year after year, that tends to drive long-term money into gold and that really is what, you know, pulls 
pulls the price up. So, you know, in those 10 years since 1968, when the all share has lost value from five years before, it's lost on average 19%. Gold's average five-year gain in those years has been 170%. Okay. So you've got a real asymmetry there as well. Okay, great. I suppose well, that, so that gives us quite a lot to talk about, especially what we've seen um, in, the, in the last year in terms of interest rates and equities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How has that shaped current demand for gold and the, the price at the moment? Well, we certainly saw a, you know, a big shift in demand, uh, investment demand for gold in the last quarter of 2018. Obviously, the stock market uh, sell-off that we had there really drove interest in gold as a safe haven. Critical thing there, of course, is that if you're a long-term investor who's already got a position, then you're then you're going to enjoy those gains rather yep. than chasing it higher whilst everybody else piles in. So you know, whilst the MSCI World Index lost what 10% over Q4, gold gained about 10%. So it really acted as a you know a, a very useful hedge if you were already in it before the crash began. Yeah. Since then, obviously, equities have now rallied. Uh, the talk of either a return to QE or certainly a delay to US interest rate hikes, uh, definitely suspension of any talk of a European Central Bank rate hike. That, you might think, is good for gold. But actually, it looks to me as if the markets have interpreted that as meaning central bankers are going to take it easy and therefore they're going to support equity markets. So at the moment, the equity market rally and the recovery that we've seen there is outweighing the interest rate effect for gold. Gold has gone pretty flat since the new year now back around $1,300 per ounce, 980 in sterling. We got to 1030, 1,030 pounds per ounce in sterling at the new year. Um, what's really interesting at the moment in terms of demand is we are seeing very weak new interest amongst UK private investors. And, of course, that doesn't fit for a lot of uh, financial journalists right now. That just doesn't make any sense because Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. Uh, surely people are piling into gold. And that's just not what we're seeing at Bullion Vault, and it's not what uh, our competitors are seeing in the industry. No, that, that is, um, as you said, for financial is definitely quite interesting. We've had a, quite a volatile week in terms of the politics, and we don't really know, we still well, we know a bit more what's going to happen, but only a bit. But even last week, this was a very much an unknown. Yeah, I, I, I am very surprised that yeah. there hasn't been more yeah, interest. It doesn't fit. So, yeah. so what, why is the case for that? Is that just the kind of reason you said in terms of the equity market and real interest rates, or is it because people just seem more confident? I think, I think it's, a, it's a, a, partly it's both. I mean, I think definitely the equity rally and I think perhaps the opportunity that some private investors saw in equities after they'd sold off into the new year. What we saw on Bullion Vault was a lot of longer-term customers actually taking profit. I mean, back above £1,000 sterling. You know, we hadn't seen that in 18 months and more. Um, so there was, you know, a nice profit there if you'd been building a position during the lull at the start of 2018. In terms of the broader picture for, you know, where is new interest in gold right now? Uh, I mean, last month in February, the daily run rate on bullion vault for new UK customers was as low as it's been since the fi- before the financial crisis. I mean, this is really something. As I say, we're, you know, we're hearing this from our friends and competitors across the industry as well, that new interest is very weak. I think that's because gold investors or people, you know, Anyone can become a gold investor, right? But people who look at gold tend to be contrarian, bloody-minded, right? You know, they're looking at the world through, you know, and saying, actually, what I need here is I need a lump of metal, right? A pet rock that's going to get me out of proxy if, you know, other things don't work out. And at the moment, I think the mayhem in Westminster and the, you know, just the, the relentless headlines of chaos and crisis... From a contrarian point of view, I think a lot of people are saying, well, I'll just sit on my hands then and wait this one out. I mean, it sounds, you know, if you look at the front page of the FT, you know, it's, I need to go and buy some gold. But I think an awful lot of private investors right now, and I think it does reflect the mood more broadly. I mean, gold, I think we have to accept, is a barometer of geopolitical and economic stress. 
we saw that during the financial crisis, and you saw the lows in gold prices historically back at the turn of the millennium. Dot-com shares were rising, it was the end of history, etc. Who needed gold? So why are people not buying gold right now on Brexit? I think perhaps the country is much less anxious about this than either Westminster or most of the mainstream media would begin to imagine. No, definitely seems to be the case. Um, you, you, you touched on the, the price there. Um, how much, And especially, I think it's quite interesting that the long-term investors of gold had taken profits. <laughs> that would imply that gold is just expensive and people don't want to buy it for that reason as well, right? I think there's definitely an element of that. I mean, I think four figures in sterling, you know, you get above that £1,000 mark, uh, you know, and, and you always get sticker shock at those kind of key levels. Um, I think to see gold settle above 1000 and hold there, I think would... Um, Personally, I think that's that's probably where we're headed longer term. Um, but obviously, at the moment as well, if you look at a price chart in sterling, you see that it was, you know, we got down to 900 and below last year, last summer. came up very quickly then when I think the reality of Brexit, first of all, started to become a bit clearer again in terms of, OK, here goes the news cycle. But also then you had, as I say, the equity sell-off last year. So you have seen these very rapid gains. We're seeing people now rebuilding positions. Uh, I mean, a lot of our client base is very active trading. And I think it does also show a key lesson for people who are investing in gold, which is if you're buying this as a form of insurance, personally, that's what I think it is for private investors and large investment portfolios alike, then it does it means that you do have to take profit at some point and you have to rebalance. And, and buy it when it's uh, a lot cheaper. And then come back in when it's come down. Yep, that makes sense. Bullion Vault is, uh, is one way to get access to gold. Um, mm-hmm. there, are, there are different ways. Um, so, so what are the main ways... Um, private investors can get physical gold, assuming, you know, the price comes off a bit and it becomes a bit more attractive or we, we go into a world of pain that we haven't quite realised yet. Right. Um, I mean, there's basically there's three ways to look at this. You can do the classic one that people immediately think of is coin and small bar uh, to keep at home. Uh, that certainly is very reassuring to have physical bullion in your hand, but it is very expensive. I personally don't think it's investable as such. I mean, you're looking at spreads of 5 and 10% to buy and then sell coin. Uh, you don't have any liquidity there really. Uh, if you, when you come to buy, you're probably going to shop around on the internet. Great. There's, you know, there's lots of online dealers and you can find the best price. When you come to sell, you're going to have to do the same thing. Only, of course, the price is now moving. You're trying to liquidate. You've got a lot of emotional inertia as well with coins. You know, a lot of coin investors become forever investors in gold. The other issue to consider if you're going to keep it at home is your home insurance. If you've got more than three grand's worth of gold, you've probably invalidated your home insurance policy on that. You need to report it to your home insurer, you may have to pay higher premiums. They may demand that you put in an insurance rated safe. So there are issues there. It's never free to store gold. Um, you know, there's always going to be a cost. And if you don't pay anything to store it or insure it, then your cost is potentially theft and loss. Very popular, of course, these days, you know, over the last 15 years since they were first developed is exchange traded gold funds. In the UK, I think there's a choice of six. They obviously solve the liquidity problem. And they also therefore enable you to get better diversification for the rest of your portfolio because you can get out at a good price and you've got low trading costs. The issue that a lot of people who are looking at gold look at on the other side with those is that you don't actually have any ownership. You're you're a shareholder in a trust whose debts are denominated in physical gold. It's a kind of a reverse alchemy. Yeah, to take physical gold, which is held in a vault and which backs the value of the trust, uh, but then to securitize that and turn that into paper, which you can trade on the stock market. Another issue which is worth thinking about is that, of course, you can only trade stocks during stock market hours. It's like coins. You can only liquidate or buy them when the shop is open. So if you look, for instance, at when gold can really move, then it might be during Asian hours. 
It might be, for instance, the Brexit referendum, June 24th, 2016. The price of gold in sterling between the referendum result becoming clear at midnight and 6am, we did £10 million worth of business on Bullion Vault. The price had moved 22% in sterling. That was the day's high. By the time the LSE opened, the London Stock Exchange, the high had already been and gone. So you couldn't have got out in an ETF at the very top if you were looking to take profits on that huge spike that we saw. Okay. Uh, and then the third option is, you know, such as Bullion Vault, there are um, other companies to look at as well if, you, if you're going to look at that. Um, and that basically gives you, for us and, and some other players as well, 24-7 access, uh, which is very helpful. Another thing that you get on Bullion Vault and some of the other providers as well in Vaulted Bullion is you can choose your location. You're not just restricted to saying, well, I want to own gold in London. You can, on Bullion Vault, choose London, New York, Zurich, very popular, Singapore or Toronto. What that's giving you is geographic diversification as well as financial investment diversification. And I think that might be important. We know, for instance, that uh, John McDonnell and the Labour Party are seriously considering if they were to win an election exchange controls because they worry that there would be capital flight from the UK. If you already own a physical asset overseas, it's very easy under exchange control regimes to sell and bring that money back. Um, But it's very difficult under exchange controls to go the other way. So it's, you know, and gold is a very simple asset to own, silver as well, or platinum overseas. It's a very simple asset to own in a foreign jurisdiction, much easier than real estate, for instance. Um, So that's another advantage maybe of thinking about owning gold in physical secure storage and choosing a location outside the UK. Okay, great. Um, I suppose just to, to, to round off, so how does gold kind of shape up against other defensive asset classes? You know, I suppose our listeners and readers traditionally think about government bonds uh, and alternatives as, as their defensive assets. How does gold shape up against that? Sure. It's, you know, gold is a very weird asset. It doesn't pay you anything. It doesn't really have a lot of industrial use. About less than 10% of annual gold demand now is for, is for industrial use. That's really its appeal is that it has always been a store of value. You can say, yeah, but that's just convention. Yeah, but it's been convention for 5,000 years. So it's, it's, you know, this is how humanity treats this stuff. Um, So it is a weird asset in that regard. It's very deep, very liquid market if you own it the right way. Um, It gives you, if you look at central banks, I mean, central bank demand is actually the big story from 2018 and coming into 2019. Last year's central bank demand globally as a group was the highest it's been since the gold standard fell over in the late 1960s. So why do central banks buy gold? They buy it for diversification. And that comes from its security of title. You own something which nobody else's default can take away from you. That's very different to credit, very different to a government bond. can't be inflated can't be destroyed. And you've also got this deep liquidity. I mean, in a financial crisis, gold's trading liquidity goes up which makes it very different to other things. Uh, So in terms of performance, gold does often move in the same direction as index-linked bond prices, Um, again, because of that real rates connection that we spoke about earlier. But as you know, I think at the moment, one thing to think about is with government debt being the size it is and with rates being where they are, it is increasingly hard to see how the 30-year bull market in bond prices can really get much higher from here. Um, so the connection between bond prices and gold, I think, you know, it's, there is, an, there is a, a possibility for that breaking if the markets really turn against government debt, uh, particularly if central bankers do return to QE or we see, you know, other kind of helicopter drops, uh, which a lot of academic theory is now taking into central bank meeting rooms. No, indeed. Thank you very much, Adrian. Thanks for that. That was really helpful. So uh, in retirement, protecting your portfolio from shop drops uh, is just as important as ensuring you have a sustainable and growing income. 
investment trust, uh, which we all know and love, can be very useful for income. Uh, They have the ability to create cash reserves, which means they can pay a steady dividend to shareholders, even if the dividends from the underlying investments changes. Some also do this to make sure they can afford to grow their dividend year on year. Leonora, some of these uh, investment trusts have tremendous records in growing dividends and the Association of Investment Companies has created a list. Uh, what, does it, what does it show us? Yes, I mean, every year the Association of Investment Companies, or AIC for short, publishes a list of its dividend heroes. These are investment trusts that have increased their dividends for 20 or more consecutive years. Um, and in the latest survey, which was recently published, 20 investment trusts have increased their dividends year on year for 20 years and four of them have actually increased their dividends for 50 or more years in a row. We have to consider this is a, a great record. Um, but why does, it, why does it matter that a trust has uh, such a long track record of growing dividends? Well, I'd say that increasing absolutely year on year is not so important. I'd say, but with any income fund, any income fund that you're looking at as an investor seeking an income, it's generally sensible to go for one that pays sustainable and increasing dividends so that they can outpace inflation. And basically what you're getting, you know, um, gives you good returns in real terms. I think that's the key thing. It's much more important to go for one, you know, that's paying a good income that kind of trends upwards, stays ahead of inflation, rather than just looking at the income funds and offer and picking the one of the highest yield at that point in time. Nope, that makes sense. Are there any kind of downsides? Is, is a trust that's committed to growing its dividend every year a good thing? Or is there something we should consider? Um, not always. I mean, it's a good aim, but it's maybe not a good idea to do it at all costs, just for the record. And I think the thing is as well, you invest in these over the long term. These are risk inve- you know, these are risky investments, they're not cash. So with any investments like these, you should have a long term investment horizon. And over a long term investment horizon it doesn't matter if, you know, there's a dividend increase every year, just as long as that income generally trends upwards. So if there's in perhaps a year or two where there's not an increase it's held or even, you know, falls back in one year, but then kind of continues to go up. That's what's most important. And as a long-term investor, it's the absolute level of income you get over the long term that's really important. It's much better to get a higher income that's kind of generally trending upwards over a long time that maybe fluctuates a bit than a lower one that all right goes up a little bit every year but it's generally low. No, no, um, course, yeah. So, you know, that's one thing to consider. I think it's also a bad idea if a trust increases its dividends at all costs just for the record because at the end of the day it's about having sustainable dividends because, you know, if they do this and sort of plug away just doing it, pulling out all the stops just to get that one year, you know, it might be unsustainable. You know, next year it might all come to tears so it might not be a dividend increase. Another thing that trust can do and it's maybe not always a great idea is to draw from capital which is fine because it inflates a dividend but then you're taking away from the capital growth ultimately you're not necessarily getting more it's just being distributed in a different way and not necessarily um you know a tax-friendly way so yeah, sustainable, sustainable mm. dividend definitely the order of the day. Um, so what are the ways? And invested? what I'd add there is actually um, another downside to you know really trying to inflate the income. It can lead fund managers to invest in companies basically that pay very high dividends at that point 
but uh, aren't necessarily very sustainable. What you want is, you know, good, sensible companies that deliver growth as well as income and that will continue to grow and continue to deliver income rather than, you know, pay a massive dividend one year and and go to the wall the next year. No, definitely. Mm. Uh, So what should investors be looking out for when they're looking for a good income trust then? Okay, there's a number of key considerations and, you know, consecutive dividend increases aren't one of them. Um, it's, you know, it's a case of having, you know, a general upward trend over a long time. So, um, first of all, what you should also look at is the payout per share you're getting, because you can increase a dividend every year, but it might be really low and it might be a small increase. So, you know, are you actually getting paid a decent dividend? What What is it in pence? Uh, and what's the yield? Because obviously, you know, that, uh, you know, what, what you, what you're getting in relation for, you know, I suppose the share price. Um, now, the most important thing, though, um, with an investment trust or any kind of fund for that matter is the total return because there's absolutely no point in buying something that pays a high income or increases a dividend every year uh, if it's losing your capital and your total returns are, are, are sort of like going down and basically overall you're losing money that's a really bad idea so what you want is a fund that pays good total returns and with investment trusts a, a really important thing to look at is the premium or discount to net asset value. Because if an investment trust is on a really high premium, basically you're paying very dearly for that income. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it might not be a good time to buy in. Uh, and it might not be worth it, quite frankly, um, you know, especially if it comes crashing down. Um, you should also check the amount in the trust revenue reserve to see whether it could sustain or increase the dividends if its investments income wasn't enough to cover them in any given year. You should also look at the dividend cover. And this is a metric that shows for how many years the current revenue reserve could pay the trust loss full financial years of dividend. Um, This kind of indicates sustainability. You can find both these pieces of information on the AIC website. That's www.theaic.co.uk. Another useful uh, metric to look at is revenue growth because it's fine and good to have a reserve but at the end of the day you want a trust with good sensible investments that can cover the dividends so have a look at the revenue growth and look at what the pace of this is relative to the dividend growth because this can in indicate sustainability. I mean, if a dividend increases going faster than, let's say, the revenue growth, that's maybe something to be concerned about because it's not covering from the um, the natural income. Yeah, it's going to come to, um, it's going to, come to a point of yeah. someday. Um, now, other data, a final piece of data which I think is quite important is gearing. That means the level of debt that the investment trust have has. I mean, just generally having high debt is not a good thing because it increases the risk and potential volatility because basically if an investment trust takes out debt to invest even more than its assets, when markets start falling, it can compound losses. Another key point about debt is have a look in the trust's annual report to see what rate of interest is paying on that debt because if it's servicing really expensive debt that's eating into your returns and compromising its ability to pay good total returns and dividends. But still, there are 20 trusts that have good records. Um, Which ones made it onto the list this year? Okay, I'm not going to go through all 20. We have a list in the magazine of these. If you look at um, the magazine or or the website, in fact, we've got the full full list on the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. But just taking the top few, City of London Investment Trust, a UK equity income trust, it's increased its 
this dividend for 52 years and at the end of February had a very nice yield of 4.53%. Um, now, there's another two trusts that have also increased the dividend for 52 years in a row. That's Bankers Investment Trust and Alliance Trust. Um, they're both global investment trusts. Not such good yields because they are more growth focused. Um, it's still not bad. Bankers at the end of February had a yield of 2.33%. An Alliance Trust had one of 1.83%. Um, another uh, sort of like topic is Caledonia. Now, Caledonia is in the ASC sector for flexible investments, which basically is kind of a mixed bunch, but it's generally wealth preservation funds. I wouldn't say Caledonia is necessarily a wealth preservation fund, but it's a, it's a multi-asset fund. It's not a pure equity fund, but it's still, it's increased its dividend for 51 years on the whole. It's got a dividend yield of 1.95%. So it's, you know, it's not um, a high income investment, but um, let's say it's, it's, a, it's a multi-asset fund. So if you want a bit of exposure to something a bit different, it could be useful and it's giving you not a bad income along the way too. Should investors only pick from this list? Are there other options too, perhaps with shorter track records? Right, absolutely not. You should never confine yourself to one list because I think it's an interesting statistic. Um, But as I said before, um, you know, increasing your dividend every year is not the most important thing and in some ways can be a bad thing if, you know, trusts are doing it in quite a reckless way, as I set out before. Uh, What's really important to point out is as well, I mean, this list only picks people, or sorry, picks trusts, which have, you know, increased their dividends for 20 years plus. But there's actually loads of investment trusts and funds, actually, that you know, are reliable dividend payers, but they've been launched more recently, so they don't have a track record and they can't make this list. And a good example of this would be Perpetual Income and Growth Investment Trust, which launched in 1996. Uh, it's raised its dividends for 19 consecutive years, but you know, misses this list. Another good example is Aberdeen Standard Equity Income Trust, which launched in 1991, and it's increased its dividends for 18 years. Now, the AI IC does um, recognise this, so it looks to highlight some of these trusts in its list of next generation dividend heroes, investment trusts that have increased their dividends each year for between 10 and 20 years. But again, this is just one list. Don't stick to this one list. There's trusts, um, you know, that have got a reasonably reliable record of increasing the dividend, but it's been for less than 10 years, uh, and you shouldn't discount them. Um, and as I hinted at earlier, you shouldn't discount funds. You know, increasing your dividend absolutely every year on the dot is not essential. Having a general upward trend is good. And there's a lot of open-ended equity income funds that do that very reliably. And a great example would be Rathbone Income, which I think actually has done it every year for 20 years. I think that's not the point. I think the point is Rathbone Income makes a good total return. Uh, it's dividend payments are making, you know, a you know, we're going up in a general upward trend and it's a very worthy uh, inclusion in an income portfolio. No, absolutely. Some great advice there. Thank you very much, Leonora. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this week's show. But for more on gold, dividend hero investment trusts and other fun tips for your portfolio, pick up a copy of this week's magazine or head to the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.